Good evening, Mosaic at WW, and happy 4th of July. Guys, it's a holiday on a Sunday. So convenient, hence why we're going to have hot dogs after. It's all going to be so good, right? Well, I um, am in love with the series that we began to journey in last week. Um, if you are joining, if you weren't here last week and you're just now joining us, um, this series that we are in is called Jesus True and Better. Now, last week, um, we went into how Jesus is the true and better Adam. And where, the, where this is coming from in this in series as a whole is it's meant to be an equipping space that we would discover together the beautiful reality that all of the scriptures, from the first word to the final page, is a unified story that leads us to Jesus. So we are looking for, for this summer, we're going to be going through and looking at how these stories all point us to Jesus. So last week we talked about how Jesus is the true and better Adam, where Adam and Eve, um, their decisions to live apart from God um, led to a distorted image bearing and also a distorted purpose. And that is the way that the first Adam did life, that he was insufficient and he was broken in his decisions and that since carried over to our ability to rightfully bear the image of God, our ability to rightfully live out God's redemptive purposes. But Jesus, see in Jesus's life, death and resurrection, we have been marked now to be remade into God's image, to be now called into new life so that we could live into his redemptive purposes in our world. So that's where we were at last week. And guys, we're just warming up. This series is going to be really cool for us to dig into these different stories to see how all of the scriptures are ultimately ushering us to the throne of Jesus. But it's important for us to handle the difficult as well as the easily beautiful. Because you see, there are, the story we're going to be going into tonight is a story that on face value is strange, difficult, um, harsh, confusing. Those are a couple of words that came to my mind when I'm reading the story we're going into tonight. Many of you have probably heard it before, but it's a story of a dad who finally gets the son that God had promised him decades before. And then, his, and then God tells this man to go and to sacrifice the life of his son. That's crazy, right? Like this is like, why? Why would God possibly be in this? What does this possibly mean? And this brings us to the bigger questions. What do we do with the difficult passages and stories of the Bible? I mean, if the Bible is, as I was saying before, a unified story that is leading us to Jesus, then how is Jesus connected to this mess of a story? How can this possibly bring beauty and honor to God? Now, maybe you've thought something like that about this story or another one of the difficult passages of the Bible at some point in your life. So um, tonight, we're going to be going to explore. Um, so you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22 is where we're going to be hanging out um, this evening. Um, if you are using a digital version, we are using the English standard version, just if you want to make it easy to kind of all follow along together. So let's go ahead and jump in to, admittedly, a difficult story. Start in verse 1. 
After these things, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said back to him, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I mean, if, if you're Abraham in this story, what are you thinking? What? You're, like God even clarifies your only son. Like what? So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the word for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and this is important, and laid it on his son, on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, you can like sense Abraham's confu- or Isaac's confusion in this, my father. And he says back, here I am, my son. And he says, behold, uh, the fire and the wood, check, check. Uh, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Fair question, right? If you're the son in this story, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now it gets harsh. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took his knife to slaughter his son. If you're new here, welcome to Mosaic at WW, where we go right into the difficult. <laughs> this is harsh, right? Like this is crazy. What is God thinking in this story? The question we need to be asking is one, what is really going on in this text? What is going on here? Now to catch you up of where we left off last week, last week we were hanging out in the garden with Adam and Eve. And, but since then, from Genesis 1 to chapter 11, it tells the story of how God created all things and made humans to be, bear his image and to rule on his behalf. So created identity and created purpose. However, the humans misuse their rule and the world spins out of control into violence and death and chaos and destruction. And this all goes, comes to a head at, the, at a moment of rebellion and scattering that occurs um, amongst the people of a place called Babylon. Now, that's Genesis 11. Then Genesis 12, where I, we meet up with this guy that's talked about here. He's originally known as Abram. We now know him as Abraham. And in this story, he's the dad. And God calls him and says that he is going to launch a rescue mission through his family, that his family would be used to rescue and to bless the entire world, that his descendants would do exactly that. The only, the only problem with this whole plan is Abraham is getting older. He has never had a child before. And his wife, Sarah, is also getting older and she is barren. And decades go by. And all of this problem lurks in the background of his story. God affirms this promise over and over and over again. And that one day Abraham will have a son of promise. And this son would eventually develop into descendants who will be of a great nation that would bless the whole world. And then after decades of waiting, Isaac is born. Now that 
is Genesis 21. And we're hanging out today in Genesis 22. See, the long wait for Isaac wasn't Abraham's true test. The, this comes in this chapter we're in today, where God tells Abraham to take this beloved son and to put him on an altar and sacrifice him. And Abraham must have been just so confused and perplexed at this moment. Why would God promise him a son and then take him away so quickly? At best, it feels like a, a bad inconsistency. At worst, it seems like God's performing a pretty evil trick. What is happening in this story? Now, this is why it's so important that we dive into the context of what is actually going on here. Because as we explore the context, we get to see a much clearer picture of what is happening in this story. So there are three specific points of context that I wanted to uh, discuss with you guys tonight. First, this was not Abraham's first encounter with God. That is a super important thing to talk about because if all of a sudden, if you've never talked to God before and then he tells you to go and do this craziness, you're like, I don't even know you. What are you doing? Why are you telling me this? But he has known God in the past. See, God had already revealed himself to Abraham many times through his successes and his failures, through his faith and in his fears, through God's abundant promises and in his ultimate continual acts of forgiveness towards Abraham and his reluctance. Abraham has experienced for decades the continual character and consistency of God. This is why in Genesis chapter 18, he asks God a question. He says, will not the judge of all the earth ultimately do what is right? Because he trusts the character of God. He knows that he is the right judge so that he is the one who will always do what is right. And it's like in this story, Abraham is putting that, that question is being put to the test. Will he trust him that he will be the one who will always do what is right? So Abraham obeys God on his unexpected command because he trusted God's promises and he knew God's character to be trustworthy and good. Let's be real. This is really hard to do. It's really hard to do. I know that in my life, in the moments of difficulty, um, experiencing death and loss and grief, frustration and pain and all the brokenness that happens in this planet death, that I am left oftentimes with questions and, and wonderings about God and his character. But you know what I have discovered in my personal limited experience? That in my story, there is me and there is God. And only one of us has ever proven himself to be consistently good and consistently trustworthy. And guys, it's never been me. God is proven himself over and over again. And that's what he had done to Abraham because Abraham had encountered him many times in the past. So in this, this story of craziness, he could trust God's character, even though he didn't know why this was all going down. So that's important. The second important piece is that Abraham, get this, didn't think that Isaac was going to die or didn't believe that he would stay dead. Now, where are we getting that from? Am I just making that up? Well, verse five, it says, it's when Abraham is talking to the two young men that kind of came with him. He said, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Do you see that? He is talking as if both of them have round trip tickets here. 
Like he is not going off to drop um, to drop Isaac off at the altar and then come back by himself. He is speaking as if both of them are going and both of them are going to return. That's interesting. Also, if we go just a little bit further down, Isaac asks that really important and good question, right? He says, um, question, dad. So uh, fire, got it, and wood, got it. Where's the lamb? And look what Abraham's response is. Verse eight, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. He didn't know the how, but he knew that God was ultimately in control and that he would provide. Now, before we continue on in this point, let's continue on in our story. Verse, um, let's reread where the cliffhanger that we were just on. Uh, verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. Let's pause there just for a second. This is really cool. Um, Whenever you see that phrase, the angel of the capital L-O-R-D, Lord, in the English translation of a Bible, this is what is known. Let me see if I can get it right. If I get it wrong, it's fine. Um, But it's a theophany. Okay, now that's a big theological word, right? But what a theophany is, is it is any time in the Old Testament that the the pre-incarnate Jesus is experienced and encountered. Now, here's what that means. Jesus isn't a baby yet born in a manger in Bethlehem. Not yet, not in this story. And Jesus is present in this story through being the angel of the Lord. Now, I'm not making that up. Don't call me a heretic just yet. In fact, what I would want you to do is actually go on a study and look up every time that that phrase is used, the angel of the Lord. Because what you'll find out is the angel of the Lord does something that in the other context, no other angel should or could do. He receives worship from Abraham himself earlier on in his story when he encounters him. Abraham worships him and and the angel of the Lord receives it. And what I want you to see is in this, he even talks about him, he talks about God in both the third and the first person. So even in this moment, Jesus is present. So here's what he says. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the the name of this place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, and don't miss this, we're going to come back to this piece. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Isaac, Abraham didn't know what God was doing exactly, but he trusted him anyway. He trusted God with the how, even when it didn't make sense. He knew that somehow God would provide He didn't know how. Um, In fact, in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, uh, the author of Hebrews is actually going into the mind of Abraham and he helps helps explain one of the theories that was running in Abraham's mind uh, in this moment that it says, uh, Hebrews 11, 19, he considered that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead. 
All right, if the knife goes and I have to finish this, I trust that even then God can control death. Now, thankfully, no resurrection was required in this story. Instead, what happens is God offers a substitutionary sacrifice in its place. And this is so vital for us to understand in Abraham's faith journey because he trusted God's character and the promises that in that delivered in the what, what God was calling him to, that he could live in faith for the how. That he could live in faith for the how. See, we don't always know how things are going to turn out in our lives. We don't always know how it's going to all go down. But while our circumstances and our stories are constantly in flux, we worship a God whose character is never in flux. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is not in changing mode. And see, when the Bible depicts God, it is constantly depicting an image that would help us clarify who he is and what is his character and what he delights in and what he loves, what delights his heart. Also, when, um, when the Bible depicts violence, oftentimes, thing, it's important to know that things are often not what they seem at first glance. For example, a surface reading is not going to reveal a, a character's intentions or motivations. It's going to take work and some digging to truly understand what is happening. Also, when we understand that other passages of the Bible can speak into what we are reading, it helps bring clarity and illumination into the story at hand. And this is exactly the case with the third point of context, which is the phrase prophetic reenactment. We're using a lot of big words tonight. Prophetic reenactment. All right. Now, let me get into that. See, the story of Abraham and Isaac takes on a much larger significance when you place it in the context of prophetic reenactment. Because throughout the Bible, God has asked prophets to reenact in miniature things that he was doing on a much grander scale. Now, here's why that matters. The acts themselves seem strange, weird, or harsh on their own. Unless you see them acted out is a much broader and bigger allegory. Then it actually changes the questions that we ask of the story. For example, when you read this story, if, if you have a heart, then you are asking God, what are you doing, right? But when we see this as prophetic reenactment, we ask the question, what did God intend for us to learn through this? I'll give you a couple examples of prophetic reenactment before we go into this example. Um, you may have heard this story before. It's a book, the, the story of a prophet named Hosea. Uh, Hosea was uh, a prophet who was called by God to live in one of these prophetic reenactments to image God himself in his undying and uncontrollable love towards the people of Israel. That even though they were unfaithful, even though they continued to rebel against him, he continued to pursue after them and display his undying love for them. And the way he chose to do this was by calling him to marry a prostitute. And that in marrying a prostitute who continued in the story over and over again to leave him and leave his home and go back over and over and over again. And Hosea continues to pursue after over and over and over again. Now, if we just look at that story, it's kind of weird, right? But if we see the heart of God in this story, we see something so beautiful, so captivating. 
guys want to hear a weirder story? The book of, the book of Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel in chapter four, he is told by God, um, we all had a weird 2020, right? Now imagine if God called you for an entire year to lay down on your side. That's it. Just lay down on your side, full year, don't move. That's what he called the prophet Ezekiel to do. For a full year, lay on your side. Now, if you are looking for a quick devotional read, that's not exactly it, right? Like you read that and you're like, I don't know how to contextualize this for my life. Uh, you know, like I'll lay on the couch for five minutes. Okay. Um, but what he was sharing with, what God was telling a story through them, through Ezekiel, was that by him laying down on his side, it was pro prophesying the soon-to-be siege of Jerusalem where the gates and the walls of Jerusalem would fall unless they repented. Crazy, right? But that is the stories of prophetic reenactment. And so here we enter into another prophetic reenactment where God is asking Abraham to play the part of God the Father in this story, who is called to sacrifice his own son. So the question is, which son are we talking about here? See, this is where it gets good because we exist on the other side of Jesus's death on a cross. So we see which sacrifice son this is pointing to. See, Isaac is pointing us to Jesus because just as Jesus was the true and better Adam that we talked about last week, Jesus is the true and better Isaac. Now, last week when I was up here, we talked about how uh, oftentimes it worked it worked out where Adam was insufficient or was rebellious in what his calling was. God overdid or did that through Jesus, that he was so much better in light of that, where he was deficient, Jesus was sufficient. But with Isaac, it's not so much that in this story, Isaac is broken or, fall, or is doing anything wrong at all, but it is that where he is not meant to be sufficient, Jesus is fully sufficient. Now, before we go any further into that, I wanted to talk about some of the things that are very good, that are incredible similarities between Isaac and Jesus. For example, both Isaac and Jesus were beloved sons who had been long awaited and were born in miraculous circumstances. Both sons carry the wood that is to be the instrument of their deaths on their backs. In both cases, the father leads the son and the son follows obediently toward his own death. Jesus was also an innocent son who went willingly up the mountain to be sacrificed. And ultimately, in both stories, God himself provides a sacrifice. And as Abraham says to Isaac, it will be a lamb. Do you guys remember that question that we talked about a minute ago about the question of Isaac to his dad? He asked the question, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? I recently heard something so beautiful that this is the central question of the entire Bible. This is the central question the entire Bible is asking, where is the lamb? Where is the sacrifice who can take away the sin, the bondage, and the death of the world? Where is the prophesied child of Eve who would crush the head of the serpent one day? Where is the line of Judah who will defend his pride of creation? Where is the king who will sit on his throne with justice and mercy and love forever and ever? Where is the long-awaited one? Where is the lamb? In the book of John, 
Chapter one, verse 29, we get the answer to that. When Jesus goes to his cousin, John the Baptist, to be baptized himself, and while he's still a distance off, John points to his cousin and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Where is the Lamb? Behold, there is the Lamb. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, it comes out of Revelation chapter five. And it is in um, a different John, a guy named John the Apostle, is uh, given a vision a few decades after Jesus' death, um, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And he gets this, um, this vision to, towards the cosmic realm where he is sitting in the throne room of God. And as he is there, it is at the moment of the culmination of creation when everything is about to be remade and reformed. And, and he sees a scroll that has seven seals on it. And what is said by an angel is that there is no one worthy. He says, who is worthy? No one is worthy. Not in the earth, not under the earth, not in the heavens. No one is worthy. So John begins to weep and cry over it. He's like, who is worthy? Eerily similar to the question, where is the lamb. And then finally, one of the elders taps John and says, John, the lion of Judah, the root of David, he has come and he alone is worthy. And that's what he hears about. He hears about a lion and then his eyes go and look and he sees and he says, but between the throne, he sees a lamb who looks as if he was slain. Where is the lamb? Where is the one who is worthy? The answer, simple and extraordinary, is Jesus. Jesus. He is the true and better. He is the true and better. So how is he the true and better Isaac? Well, you see, Isaac carried the method of his sacrifice up Mount Moriah. Do you remember that, that end of this verse that says, as it said to this day on the Mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This was a prophecy because hundreds of years later on that exact same mountaintop would one day become the temple of Solomon where continual sacrifices would be made day after day after day so that the people of Israel could be forgiven for their continual trespasses. But it was always an insufficient sacrifice because it always required another. So Isaac carried the method of his sacrifice up that Mount, up Mount Moriah. Jesus carried the method of his sacrifice right past the temple on Mount Moriah, up another mountain called Mount Golgotha, the, the mountain of the skull, to be offered up, not as one of many sacrifices, but as the final sacrifice, as the permanent sacrifice. And that's really good news. Because there's nothing that we can offer to God to increase our standing with him. We don't need to offer pigeons or lambs or our best efforts for God. Instead, what he wants is a heart of worship that is the ultimate, the only sacrifice that we can do in response is ourselves. You got all of me. But it's not to prove anything to God. It's because he is that good. It's because that's what he desires is our whole devoted heart and life and mind. 
Isaac, was confused by the, this entire ordeal, right? Like you could read that pretty clearly into this. He's like, I don't get what's happening here in this story, but I'll keep listening. Jesus went to the cross with full awareness of what he was going to be experiencing. Isaac was offered up by his father, but was substituted at the last minute with another sacrifice. Jesus was offered up by his father and was the ultimate substituted sacrifice for all of humanity. And that is good news. Now, for most of us, our problem with this story, though, is not with probably with Isaac being substituted and not dying, right? Like, we're pretty good with that part of the story, right? But instead, what I, what I would imagine that many of us can be dumbfounded by is the fact that God would act, ask for the sacrifice of Isaac at all. But here's what we need to keep in mind with this. If Jesus is the true and better Isaac, and that means that God himself, God the Father, is the true and better Abraham in this story. Remember, this is a prophetic reenactment of what is to come, that the son of promise would be laid down by his own father. And if that is the case, then as we sit in the story, and we, what I want us to watch is the conflicted brokenness of Abraham in this story. Don't assume that he is dispassionate just because that is not write, written down specifically in this story. The father's heart is heavy in the story. Any good dads would be, obviously. I experienced personally my first window into the father's broken heart for the first time um, at the beginning of the pandemic. Many of you guys already know our story um, that Ali and I were stuck in China at the beginning of the pandemic um, while adopting our son, Asher. Um, our adoption process by itself was absolutely bonkers. It was like God had to provide miracle after miracle and open doors that had no business being open for us to even get to him. And then after two weeks of quarantine in China, we get to him for about a week and we have him with us and we go to the airport. And at that point, our journey was long and exhausting and we were gonna crash for two months at that point. But instead we are told at the check-in counter that our paperwork is not, is, is not in order with some things that we had never been filled in on. And they, were, they told us that he was not gonna be able to get on that flight. And in that moment, we were confused, frustrated, and curious about what was gonna happen. But little did we know that for the next month and a half, we were gonna have to fight through the constant ups and downs of this story. It was hard. It was so hard. Um, and we would oftentimes get well-meaning messages from people saying things like, God's got this. It's all going to work out. Asher's for sure coming home. No way this isn't working out exactly like you dream. And, and like we appreciated the sentiment. But the reality is, is that when Allie and I were reading the Bible, we don't, have, we don't see a God in here that promises my desired outcome every time. Instead, what we discover is a God who guarantees his presence in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the hurt, in the midst of the pain. And we knew that God would be our, com our comforter, but we also knew that there was no promise on how this was all going to play out. So 
we imperfectly tried to draw near to Jesus and into community. And it all came to a head, though, when one, during one nap time, we were on a really expensive lawyer phone call. Like, I'm pretty sure they bill by the nanosecond. And um, we're on this phone call with an immigration lawyer in Beijing who informed us, after looking at our case, there is no way he is ever leaving the nation of China. And now it settles in. And we are shell-shocked. And as we go into Asher's room, to, we, we go and we pick him up out of his crib and we're holding him and then the tears start. And in that moment, the grief starts settling in as he begins to wake up and, and we're floored. We don't know what to do. And in that moment, I get a glimpse into the broken heart of our Heavenly Father. See, I had never been a dad before, so I didn't really know what I was supposed to be feeling in any of this. But in that moment, I got a glimpse into God's heart for humanity, for his son. See, the father's heart is rich in compassion and mercy. He is brokenhearted over the suffering, the sin, the death, and the decay of our world. Which means that when he saw Jesus on the cross, he wasn't looking at him like he is a villain twisting his mustache on the end going, like that's not his character. He isn't looking with sick delight. He takes no pleasure in his justice and his wrath falling on his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. This is actually what the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 28 would call God's strange work, his alien work. The execution of wrath is his strange work. It's not what he he desires. It's not what comes natural, but it is what is required in the world of planet death. The heart of the father was well-pleased at Jesus's baptism, and it was well-pleased even at the moment watching his son die as the ultimate sacrificial lamb on a cross, bearing the weight of the world's sin on his own back. The father's heart. And it's important that we know that because like it says in Romans 8, 31, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see the father's heart? The father is the true and better Abraham who offered up the son of promise, except followed through on the offering for the sake of love. See, Asher seemed to be our son of promise, but now, like Abraham, we had to trust God with the how. We didn't know the way this was all going to play out. Now, thankfully, things started to change pretty quickly. After that phone call, we get Asher and we go over to our friend's apartment and for a good old-fashioned cry sesh. And as we're like mid-cry sesh, um, we get a phone call. And that turns into another phone call, another phone call, and door after door after door that had no business being open began to open. And it got really good. And within two weeks, we took one last trip to Shanghai Disneyland because, you know, when in Shanghai, (laughs) got on an airplane and headed home. Now, I'm a big fan of the outcome. But I'd like to believe that even if that wasn't the outcome of this story, I would still share it. Because the father's heart does not change regardless of the outcome. 
He's still kind, he's still merciful, and he is still for the good of those who loved him, so much so that he did not hold back even his own son. Paul would go on to say it this way, for I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is really good news. No circumstance that you or I will ever face, even though it feels like he's distant, he is not far off. His love has not been separated from us. He is still with us. He wants to draw us near into a hug. This is the heart of the Father. And if you leave with nothing else but understanding a little bit more the heart of the Father, take that with you. But I do know that there's one last question that we need to wrestle with, and we'll close up with this. Why death at all? I mean, maybe for you, the thought of God actually sacrificing his own son doesn't sound a whole lot better than Isaac dying either. You're like, still do dying, right? So why? Why the violence? Why sacrifice? Why couldn't God just overlook humanity's rebellion? Now, I don't know if you remember, but last week we talked about the tree of, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the story of these two trees, that humanity was created in God's image with God's purpose, but was given a choice to either eat of God's own life or to eat of man's own wisdom, to follow the way of God or to follow our own way where we define good and bad on our own terms. And therein lies the condition that if humanity turns away from him, they die because nothing can live apart from the one who is life. Yet that's what we choose. It's what we chose. It's what we're infected with. And you see, it's important that we know God didn't introduce death into the equation. We did. God's problem and, and ours is figuring out how we deal with it. You see, Jesus willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father, just as Isaac did to Abraham, so that death could be defeated, that the brokenness of humanity could be healed, so that the wrath of God could be satisfied. He went through all of it, knowing the pain. He didn't try to sidestep death. He plowed right through it for the sake of love. God can't pretend that death isn't there, but he can make a way where there is no way. And this is the question that the entire Hebrew scriptures are wrestling with. And the answer to what is the solution for death that the, the Bible gives is sacrifice. Sacrifice is the death of one thing so that something else can have a new life. And what makes the gospel such good news is that God solves the problem not by sidestepping, not by evaporating all of creation, but by going himself and pushing through the brokenness, the pain, the suffering. Jesus' sacrifice acts almost like a cosmic sponge, answering the call for God's holiness by absorbing our sin, our death, our pain, our suffering on to himself so that we could be counted as righteous with him. Not because we're good, but because he is. Because Jesus is the true and better Isaac, the one who willingly submitted himself to his father's will and surrendered his life so that we might live. I mean, even the most difficult of stories of the Bible, I hope you can see, ultimately whispers the name of Jesus. Because that's what the entire Bible is doing. Now, I do realize that maybe for some of us here, you might still have questions about Jesus. And maybe this story, you've never even heard of it. And you're like, well, now I, I trust the Bible even less today than I did previously. 
Maybe you still have questions, and I want you to know, if that is you, that this is a safe community for the wrestle. This is a safe community to ask questions, to dive in deep, and to look at how can such twistedness ultimately bring glory to God. This is why we've created a multitude of spaces. One of the ones I want to just mention briefly is called Connect Hub. Uh, it's a great space that we have um, I believe right now it's twice a month um, and that this space exists to be a space where we can draw near in community to talk through the difficult, to talk through the beautiful, to celebrate, to grieve, to basically just do life together. And my hope is that for all of us that our eyes would desire to look upon Jesus and be transformed by what we see. Because again, the entire Bible is asking that simple question, where is the lamb? And you see in Jesus We find him. We find that Jesus is the true and better Isaac and that he alone is worthy. And for all of us, we simply need to focus our minds day after day after day through the difficult, through the trials, through the frustrations and in the highs to see that he really is true and better. See, true and better than our worst moments and our best moments. True and better through the entirety of the Bible. And it's as we see the Bible as a unified story that leads us to Jesus that we discover his presence, not only in our difficult, but in the Bible's difficult. It's as we see the Bible as a unified story that leads us to Jesus that we discover the one who turns chaos into clarity, brokenness into beauty. I'm gonna go ahead and call the band up. And what I would love for us to do together right now is take... We're going to just take a few seconds in silence, and I want us to just simply sit in this for a moment. And if there's anything that you need to express to God, to express to our Father that his heart would receive, I want to give us a space right now to do that, because I know with all the fun we're going to be having tonight, it's so easy to kind of blow past that. So let's take a moment right now to just sit and say whatever you feel like you need to to God. And then I'll close us up in prayer. Heavenly Father, that's exactly what you are. I know for many of us, we had different experiences with our earthly fathers. Some non-existent, some bad, some decent, some wonderful. Some pointed us towards you and some pushed us further away. But you are our Heavenly Father. Your heart is good. Your heart is kind. Your heart is for humanity. That in the midst of the brokenness, the struggle, the grief, the strife, all of it, you are present and you are not looking with a pointed finger. You are looking to grieve with your kids. So Father, I pray for for us tonight as a body, as your church, that we would cry out to you as our good dad as our heavenly father, the one whom whom by our own ability, we have no business calling you dad. We did not earn our adoption into your forever family, yet you have called us that, sons and daughters of the king. So Lord, I pray that tonight we would rest in who you are, that wherever our lives are on the spectrum of the crazy, whether we are CPs who just moved here from all across the country and just looking to get settled, whether we are struggling through the difficulties of life, whether things are seem like spectacular and awesome 
or things feel like they're in the dumps right now. I pray that in all of those circumstances that we'd see that you are present with us and that through Jesus on the cross, you showed us the ultimate example of that. So Lord, we rest in you tonight. We need you more than we know. Please help us, Lord, to discover more of our need for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.